0: Well, in this last message to you, I, I'd like to speak to you about what the Puritans called the four great last things. The four great last things. Some of them wrote books with that title too. Robert Bolton did, for example. And by that, they meant death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Or you'd say salvation, <clears throat> and damnation. And you can find that in our text tonight Hebrews 9:27 and 28. As it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. This is a glorious text. It's one of those big texts in the Bible that sort of comprehends everything. It kind of has a sweep of all the great truths we, we need to know. And it flows out of the verses that I read to you before, which are germane to the book of Hebrews. You know the book of Hebrews is all about the superiority of the high priesthood of Jesus Christ and the blessings of the new covenant in comparison with the blessings of the old covenant or the Old Testament, as Hebrew 9 puts it. And what you find in the book of Hebrews is a division into three sections. Chapters 1 through 4.13 talk about focusing in like a camera the superiority of Christ's person. He's better than the prophets, we're told. He's better than the angels, we're told. And then we're told he's better than Moses. There's no person so valuable as Jesus Christ in the second section of hebrews hebrews 4:14 4, to hebrews 10:18 the section in which our text is taken from we're told about the superiority now not of his person but the superiority of his work that his work is better than the priesthood of Aaron better than the priesthood of Melchizedek he is the only the exclusive Mediator, to whom all the other priesthoods were pointing for their fulfillment. And then in chapter 10, 19, through the end of the book, the author focuses on the superiority of the Christian's walk in and through Christ. The Christian's walk. And there we are told over and over again persevere in living the christian life press on continue on fight the battle run the race be assured of faith in christ that he is a superior savior and the end conclusion of the book it almost shouts out at you christianity you hebrew christians christianity is so superior in jesus to judaism that the thought of you lapsing back into Judaism like your fellow Jews are telling you to do, to go back to the ceremonial laws and the sacrifices, should be banished from your mind because Jesus Christ is superior in every possible way. And what he's stressing in Hebrews 9 is that that superiority... Is so great compared to the Old Testament that he's looking, he's looking, he's grappling with how to explain that Jesus Christ shed his blood just once, just once, and it was good forever. Whereas in the Old Testament there were thousands and tens of thousands of bulls and goats and heifers and turtle doves. It had to be sacrificed, and the blood was never enough. It was always pointing to the blood to come. Why would you go back, Hebrew Christians? Even if you're persecuted by your fellow Jews, you have everything in Christ. So that's what Hebrews 9 is all about. And then at the end of the chapter, he's grappling, he's grappling with how to explain this, how to illustrate it. And he comes up with something quite amazing. So just as Jesus was the answer for all the Old Testament sacrifices, surely as those animals had to die, and then Jesus had to come to be the fulfillment, so surely people have to die. And afterwards comes the judgment. And so surely Christ will come again on the clouds. He who died will come again on the clouds and we will all be resurrected and we will stand before Him. And those who have been taught to look for Him, He will come for them without sin unto salvation. And the obvious conclusion is those who are not lookers for him, he will come to their damnation. So, he sets up a logical chain here. Just as the Old Testament inevitably leads to the New Testament, just as the blood of bulls and goats leads to the superior blood of Jesus, so death leads to judgment. And so Christ will come again. And will gather his own to himself. One event will lead to the other automatically. As death is an act of God. Which will inevitably lead into another act of God. That is the judgment. So the act of God's sacrifice. In the blood of Jesus. Will inevitably lead into another act of God. The second coming of Jesus. And so in verse 27. He lines up this combination. Death will certainly be followed by judgment. And in verse 28, he's saying Christ will definitely come again unto salvation and damnation. Hence the four points. The four great last things. Now the first of them is death. Listen to what he says about death As it is appointed unto men, men means everyone, once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered, but he's coming again. So it's appointed, it's appointed that you and I will die. The word appointed here is, it's laid up in reserve, is the actual meaning of the Greek word. Laid up in reserve. God knows. God has appointed the day in which you will die, the day in which I will die. We can die when we're young. We definitely will die when we're old. And therefore, we must all face this last enemy this king of terrors that the Bible calls death. We must all experience this unspeakable, radical separation of our soul and our body. Unnatural, unnatural separation. We were created to live, but we fell and we've Earn the right, so to speak, to die. We must die. We must die. Death does not ask if we are useful members of society. If we're loving fathers and mothers. If we're pillars among the children of God. If we're mothers in Israel. Death will come for all of us. For all of us. Just this two or three days ago just a wonderful godly preacher preacher who was actually Sinclair Ferguson's model mentor his name is Eric Alexander he didn't make a lot of trips to america but he's well known all throughout the uk just a wonderful godly man powerful powerful preacher we just received word he he died 90 years old doesn't matter how godly you are. Doesn't matter how ungodly you are. Doesn't matter how educated, how uneducated, how rich, how poor, you will die. And you can't negotiate. You see, it's an appointment. You can't negotiate this appointment. It's not like going to the dentist or the doctor where you can call call him up and say, I'm so sorry, I had something come up. Can we we postpone the appointment a few months? Can't do that. Your name is in God's appointment book. And you must be ready to meet him. At all times, Jesus said, be always ready for you know not when the master shall come and call for you. And this is, of, of course, all the fruit of our deep fallen Adam. In the day that you eat thereof, dying thou shalt die, is what the Hebrew says. In the day you sin, you begin to die, and you will die. It's an employment. Death is a violent punishment for sin. The body, the soul, are ripped apart. Our death is an unavoidable certainty. And it will come in an unpredictable time. There's no one so old that doesn't think he has another year to live, said one of the Puritans. If you're 15, you think you're going to be 16. If you're 4, you think you're going to turn 5. If you're 95, you think you're going to turn 96. There was a man in my church who was 101, 101. He was in a nursing home, and he kept telling me he was going to get out of the nursing home and go back and work in his garden again. Of course, it never happened. But you see, the principle of life is inside of us, and so we're prone to push away the day of our death, aren't we? And we think somehow it's not going to happen to us. Well, at least not yet. But you see, the text says it's appointed unto all men Wants to die. 85% of the plans that Americans make, I read in a study, 85% of the plans that Americans make for their lives never come to fruition. In America, we dream big. We think we're going to do this, we think we're going to do that. We spend time and energy, but very little time is spent preparing for the one thing that will absolutely be certain which is our death. My dad used to always pray after our supper, Lord, let our lives be nothing but a preparation to meet thee in the righteousness and peace of Christ. God has given you one soul to gain or to lose. One soul. One soul to get ready To meet him. You can't afford to lose that soul. You can't afford to lose that soul. It is appointed unto you once to die. Are you ready? If you were to die today, could you say, it is well, by the grace of God, it is well with my soul. So that's the first thing. The second thing in the text is that judgment follows death as B follows A. There's a logic here. Whoever dies will enter into judgment with God. And entering into judgment with God means, of course, that God will examine in His perfect record... Everything you've ever said, everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever done. And you need to be able to stand before him to be received into heaven absolutely spotless because he can't receive anything sinful into heaven. So the question is, how are you going to do that? Now, you might say, from our perspective, we might say, but judgment doesn't always follow death right away. There's a, what our theologians call an intermediate state, where your soul goes to God, but your body goes in the grave, and public judgment doesn't happen until Christ comes again. Why doesn't the author to the Hebrews speak about that, this long period of time between our death, and the time when Jesus comes again. You see, from our perspective, that's a long period of time. Let's say it's 200 years, just to talk about it. Or maybe 500 years. That's nothing compared to eternity, you see. So the Bible speaks very little about the intermediate state, because in God's mind, a thousand years are as one day. It's a very short time. So your one soul must be prepared for that never, 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 never ending eternity. And the day of judgment will determine to which one of those two places you go of these four last things, heaven or hell, by salvation or by damnation. By free grace salvation or by justly earned damnation. And so eternity, you know, our, our lives, even if we live to be 100 years old, our lives are less than one grain of sand compared to all the sand in the world in terms of duration. Perhaps you read Thomas Watson's description of that. He, says, he, said, he said it like this. He said, if you took all the sand in the entire world and you put it on one huge mountain that would go up to the sky and would go for miles and miles and miles, all the sand in the world, boys and girls, in one great big pile. And he said, if a bird came every 1,000 years and took one grain in its beak and moved it to a new pile and another grain... A thousand years later. Another grain a thousand years later. After all the millions and billions and zillions and trillions and whatever else is beyond that. Years that would pass by. And the whole sand pile would be moved. Thomas Watson said, eternity would scarcely have begun. So how in the world can you and I put our hearts in this tiny, tiny little one grain of sand which we call our lifetime and not prepare for eternity? How can you prepare, spend more time preparing for a one-week vacation trip than you spend for a never, never, never ending eternity? My dear friend, you must, boys and girls, teenagers, parents, grandparents... We must be prepared for judgment. It will certainly follow death. Now, that judgment will involve four things. The first thing God will judge is our public dealings with our entire being, body and soul. He'll judge us publicly. Judgment will follow the general resurrection on the great day when Jesus comes on the clouds. Everything about you will be judged. Everything you have is from God. Everything you have, you have to give an account back to God. Boys and girls, what you've done with your eyes, what you've done with your hands, your feet, your brain what you've done with your soul, it will all come open and public. There will be no secrets. Sometimes you try to hide something you've done wrong. Well, one day, everyone's going to know. It will come out in the open, publicly. God knows. There's no secrets from God. That's number one. Number two, God's judgment of you and me will be a public declaration regarding the state of our soul at death. Right now, we are all alive. Those of you who are unsaved, you still have opportunity to repent and believe the gospel. You still have an opportunity to be saved. That door may close quickly, or it may close a little while, but it will, go, it will come fast. Your life will disappear Quickly. And the state of your soul by the time you die will be fixed at death. The Bible says the tree where it falls, be it to the north or be it to the south. North in those days was considered to be kind of a judgment and south kind of a, a gift. So be it to the north, unprepared to meet God, or be it to the south, prepare to me, God, there it shall lie. There it shall lie. You can't change it anymore. Third, the act of public demonstration of the righteousness of God's sentence will be set upon you. And that judgment will be based on, this may surprise you, works. Works. Your works. Oh, you say, but I thought we're saved by grace. Absolutely, you're saved by grace. But when you're saved by grace, it will be manifest by your works. Justification will produce sanctification. Five times the New Testament says we will be judged by our works. Let me just give you one of them. Revelation twenty, verse twelve. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. The books were open, another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. You see it again in Matthew twelve, thirty six, John 5, 28, 2 Corinthians five, ten. We're judged by our works. Because, Jesus said, by their fruits ye shall know them. If we're saved by grace, it cannot but be manifest by our works. So the Bible nowhere validates that faith as saving that does not transform a person in the totality of his life. All those written in the Lamb's Book of Life will also manifest in their life the marks of grace the fruits of grace that they've been wrought upon by God. And then four, the act of public assignment to one of two states will take place. After God publicly judges us, He will publicly assign us to heaven or to hell. Matthew twenty five forty six, "...and these shall go away into everlasting punishment," but the righteous into life eternal. Revelation 20.15 Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is a solemn truth. The Bible teaches that as death leaves you, judgment will find you. And as judgment finds you, eternity will open up its arms to embrace you and never release you. Those who go to hell can't get to heaven and those who go to heaven can't get to hell. If you're outside of Christ in that day, it's forever too late. Forever too late. So what the author is saying is that surely as you are alive, you're going to die. As surely as you die, you're going to enter into judgment. And it will either be well or it will be woe. And then he crosses the bridge and says, Christ, so Christ was once offered. He died. Well, he was once offered to bear the sins of many... And unto them that look for him, he shall come again. The second time without sin unto salvation. Surely you die and be judgment. So surely he died and there will be judgment. Because he'll come the second time. So here you have, you see, the one offering that can pay for sin. The one answer, the one answer in Jesus can save your soul. And then it will produce fruits in your life and you'll be judged by your works. No one else can save you. No blood of bulls and goats. He labors throughout this whole chapter. Nothing can suffice God except the blood of Christ. And the blood of Christ that was once poured out, that is sufficient forever. Because there's infinite value. Because he's also God, you see. He's not just a man. In the blood of Jesus... The blood of the infinite God-man alone can satisfy an infinitely holy God. And so, in Jesus' obedience, there are two things. Two things that you need, that you cannot do. Two things that must be imputed to you, so that your sins can be imputed to him, and you can be saved. The first is the obvious one, that he has to die for us. There's no forgiveness of sin, verse 22 says, without the shedding of blood. The Savior who would save us must die. Sin demands death, and we're all sinners. So, Jesus must die for us. We call that his passive obedience, his suffering. Comes from the Latin word passio, which means suffering. He's suffering obedience. He suffered and died. But that doesn't earn us the right to heaven, does it? No, that just wipes away our sin. If if we that if Jesus' obedience is imputed to us and our sins are imputed to him, our sins are gone. But to have a right to heaven, we must obey the law perfectly. We must love God above all, first table of the law, must love our neighbors as ourselves. So what does that mean? Well, that means, since we've broken every one of the Ten Commandments, that Jesus must obey the law perfectly, also, as our substitute. We call that his active obedience. For 33 years he came into this world. He never sinned once. He always loved God above all. He loved his neighbors himself. And so when we repent of our sins by the grace of the Holy Spirit, and believe in Christ alone for salvation, that double obedience, active obedience to the law, passive obedience, paying for sin, that double obedience is imputed to me, and my sins are imputed to Jesus, which cost Him His blood. That's salvation. And that Savior is now coming again on the clouds. He's coming again on the clouds, So that all those who look for Him, this is a mark of grace, this is the description of a true believer, they are lookers for Him. Shall He appear the second time? Without sin. Oh, what a beautiful thing that is. Without sin. Imagine being sin-free in Emmanuel's land. Unto salvation. That's the gospel. This is the whole counsel of God. So the question is, are we ready? How do I know if I'm ready? I know if I've been made a looker for Him. And what does it mean to be made a looker for Him? Where do we look for Him? Well, if the Holy Spirit makes you a looker for Jesus, that means He's shown you your need. He's shown you your desperate condition. He's shown you something of your sin and misery. And where do you look for him? Well, the answer is obvious. You look for him in the Bible, don't you? Every page of the Bible, Jesus is there. We just need eyes to see it. And what we want to do as we look for him, we want desperately, don't we? We want to know him. We want to love him. We want to find in him everything we need for time and for eternity. And we learn to look for him in prayer. We go to him in prayer. We want communion with him in prayer. He comes to commune with us through his word and we go back and commune with him through prayer. And so if we don't have communion with him in prayer, if we don't feel contact with Jesus, we're we're miserable if we're a true believer because we want communion with him. We're looking for him. Everything is empty without him. You can get up in the morning and go through a whole day and maybe you face many problems and you didn't didn't have a very good day. But if you had communion with Jesus that day, you had a very good day. Or you can get up in the morning and maybe things went pretty well all day long. But you lay your head on the pillow at night and you're a little bit restless. I had no communion with Jesus today. It was a bad day. You see, God makes His people to be lookers for Jesus Christ. I think this is one of the most wonderful marks of grace in all the Bible because the smallest child in grace has learned already to look for a Savior. Jesus. And the most advanced in grace is always looking to know Him better. Always to know Him better. William Perkins as a treatise, he's the father of Puritanism, a treatise with 15 marks of grace. And he gets done with all 15 and he says, now maybe, maybe you still don't know if you're a believer. Well, I'm going to give you one more mark of grace, one more mark of grace that every believer can say yes to, unqualified yes. And that is simply this, do you long to know Jesus better? If You can't say that, my friend, you're not a Christian. If you can say that, you are a Christian. You're a looker for him. So believers are lookers for him in the Bible. They're lookers for him in prayer. They're lookers for him in church. In church. They want to hear about Jesus. And a lady in my church, she was a very, uh, one of those blunt, feisty dutch women but very godly at the same time she could be very open and honest with me and i i could be honest and open with her as well and she said to me one time you know she said uh, she always called me beaky she didn't use any title like reverend or pastor she said beaky beaky she said sometimes i think it takes you too long to get to christ in the sermon and i'm praying while you're preaching get to christ now and then I get to Christ and she says, Stay right there. <laughs> she tells the Lord, help him to stay right there. You see, she's she's a looker for Christ. Oh, a pastor, a faithful pastor loves those kinds of listeners. They want to hear about Jesus. That's a blessing of the, of the minister that you're getting. He, he loves to preach Christ. He's one of those ministers who can say with Samuel Rutherford, My two favorite things in this world are knowing Jesus and preaching Jesus. It's all about Jesus, you see. You're a looker for Him in sermons, in worship, in church. If you're a looker for Him, you're also a looker not only for Him in the Bible and in prayer and in church worship but also in fellowship with the saints. You want to talk to other believers about the one you love. About Jesus. And how sweet the communion of saints can be. And then I would add, you want to look for him in sound literature too. Those great classics of ages past or books written by godly people today. You want to read about him. You want to... You want to look up the texts that you read. You You want to know him better and better and better. He's coming, you lookers for Jesus. He's coming the second time without sin for salvation, for salvation for the lookers. Are you one of those lookers? Are you one of the active ones who are waiting, waiting for him, waiting for him to come? And oh, it's just so beautiful how it's described, isn't it? Coming without sin. And then unto salvation. What is salvation? Salvation is to be delivered from all sin and to be delivered unto the greatest good, which is to be with Jesus forever and ever. And so these two things belong together without sin and unto salvation. He's coming again to make all things right. And when he comes again, he's coming in glory. He's coming in the glory of His Father, the Bible says. Another place it says He's coming in His own glory. And another place it says He's coming in the glory of the holy angels. His coming is a glorious coming. He'll be surrounded by ten thousands times ten thousands of holy angels. And the glory of the Father will be with Him. And when He comes, the dead shall arise. The earth and the sea shall give up the dead that are in it, the Bible says. And the souls, the souls that are laying before him will all re-enter their bodies, their resurrected bodies. Jonathan Edwards put it this way so vividly. He said, the souls of the righteous, they take wings and fly joyfully into their bodies so that with their whole body and their whole soul reunited as one person, They can glorify the Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever. That's what we want, don't we? We want to glorify Him in the totality of our our personhood. With soul and body. We're longing for that day. Beyond the intermediate state. When the whole man, the whole person, can praise Him from whom all blessings flow. But the souls of the ungodly, Eber says shall reluctantly, being compelled by the power of the judge, re-enter their bodies, knowing that their damnation will be all the more severe in the pains of their bodies as well. And everyone will be judged. The unsaved will be on Christ's left hand. The goats, the sheep, will be on his right hand. And everyone will be judged. And every knee shall bow. Also the goats. Also the ungodly. Every knee shall bow and confess that he is Lord. Every tongue shall say, He is Lord. Even though none of the ungodly would worship him as Lord in this life. And that day, we'll have to give an account Of every privilege, not only every sin we've committed, but every privilege that was granted to us and of every ray of light that we have ever enjoyed. And as J.C. Ryle once said, to give an account of my sin in an unconverted state before this judge on the day of judgment, before an open Bible, and having grown up in the church, having, having grown up under the Word of God, Having lived a life in conjunction with the Word of God and still to go lost will be a hell within a hell. Dreadful will it be to fall into the hands of a living God unprepared when that living God has thousands of times invited us to come to Him just as we are for salvation. What a tragedy to go lost under an open Bible. Well, in that day, under that judgment, the books will be opened, the Bible says. Now, there's no physical books in heaven. This is all figurative, but it's a powerful picture. And there'll be three or four books, both for the ungodly and for the godly, that will go open. The first book that will go open is the book of remembrance, God says, in the Prophets. And all of our sins will be recorded in that book of God's remembrance. You can't fool God. You can't make light of sin on the day of judgment. All your pride, all your unbelief, all your hatred, all your sins of commission, all your sins of omission, it will all be remembered by God. And then God will open the book of providence. All his goodness, which should have led you to repentance. All your hardness against him, despite all his goodness to you, it will all come out into the open. And then the book of Scripture will go open. The Bible speaks of the law book going open. As many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law. As many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. And the book of the gospel shall go open. In that day, God shall judge the secrets of many by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. And our condemnation will be in exact proportion to our guilt. And our guilt will be always in proportion to abused light and abused privileges. And finally, the book of our conscience will go open. And that book will be worse than a thousand witnesses against us if we're unconverted in that day. For we won't have one answer, the Bible says, not one answer upon a thousand questions from God. But for God's people, all the books will be so different. The first book, the book of remembrance, will their sins be remembered on the judgment day? God's people's sins? Well, that's a matter of great debate, actually, in church history, because four or five times in the Bible, it says, everyone will give an account, and all their sins shall be remembered. So, it seems like also God's people's sins will be remembered. Other theologians say, oh, that's impossible, because they're washed away in the sea of eternal forgetfulness behind God's back. Well, I can't give you a definitive answer here. But the point is this. We may say this. If God's people's sins are remembered on the day of judgment, it will only be to magnify God's grace. And they will rejoice in the salvation of their God. You see, one reason among several, but one important reason, why a believer in heaven will be able to have a more profound appreciation for Christ even than the holy angels who have never sinned is because we have sinned and we've been delivered from the hell we deserve. So if you never had any remembrance that you've ever sinned in heaven, how could you appreciate Salvation beyond the level of the angels. So you see, that sin will never be held against you in any way. It will just be used to magnify the grace of God so that you praise Him all the more. Book of remembrance. Secondly, the book of life and the Lamb. The Bible speaks of that, Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. He's chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. Our names are written in that book. That's the sheer grace of God. No one in heaven will ever say, I deserve to be here. It's all grace. And no one in hell will ever say, I don't deserve to be here, because they will know they've all sinned themselves into hell. And then, thirdly, let me just put it this way there will be no book, no book to condemn them, because across every page of their lives, All the sins and all the pages of their life is written, paid in full. Paid in full by the blood of Christ. And then Jesus will exercise the judgment. It will be a divine judgment. It will be a searching judgment. It will be an impartial judgment. It will be a near judgment. The judge stands at the door. It will be a final judgment. There's no exchange Think of the, 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 the poor man Lazarus and, and the rich man Dives. It will be an executed judgment. These shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, Paul says, we persuade men. That's the task of a minister also. It's a hard task. It's a warning task. But we're to persuade men. Your pastor coming is going to persuade you that there are no exit signs in hell like there are in this building. Exit signs. There's a way out. There's no exit signs in hell. No way out of everlasting, everlasting, everlasting destruction. You will be utterly alone in hell. You'll have no friendships in hell. You'll be ever dying in hell and yet never dead if you're not in the Lord Jesus Christ. The very first week, I was a minister. I was 25 years old. I got a call that one of my parishioners was dying. I went right to the hospital. I got there before the family got there. I stood all alone beside this dying member who I didn't know yet. I hadn't seen many funerals. It, death was a frightening experience to me. Just It was so... New for me, but I saw I could see the death on the face and groanings just groanings, it was awful. But in the next bed, there were two beds in the room. There was a lady I never experienced anything like this ever since, but there was a lady who just kept saying over and over, and she was dying at the same time. I stood in the midst of the dying. And she was saying over and over again, I had a God-fearing father. I had a God-fearing father. I had a God-fearing father. And I stood between them and suddenly I realized this is a foretaste of hell because neither person could communicate with the other. They were eight feet away. But they couldn't communicate with each other. There's no friendship in hell. Everyone will be always dying Dying, 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 and yet never dead. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men if you're not saved tonight, make haste, make haste for your life's sake. Because the day's coming soon when the unjust shall be unjust still, and the filthy shall be filthy still. Hell is a place that will house no unbelievers. But it will be too late. Too late is written across the gates of hell. Too late to turn to God. Too late to repent. Too late to believe the Gospel. And My unconverted friend, you're only one heartbeat away. One heartbeat away from eternity. You need to be ready. Jonathan Edwards wrote, Oh God, stamp eternity on my eyes. And I would say, stamp it on your heart, in your mind, in your feet, in your hands. Eternity is coming. You must be prepared for the judgment. But on the other hand, over against this damnation, there is this wonderful salvation through the double obedience of Christ. Manifested in the walk of life, in the marks of grace, of a happy day where sin will be put to an end. There'll be perfect salvation for believers. Perfect salvation. Salvation from Satan, from the world, from the old man nature, from sin. There'll be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more night, no more death, no more curse, no more temptation. No more temptation to be tempted. And there'll be perfect activities. Worshiping God in song. Serving God. Exercising authority with Christ on thrones. We don't know over what. There'll be eternal communion with saints. With the angels. And above all, the supreme joy of heaven. Eternal communion with the triune God. And we'll see our Savior face to face. Revelation 19 says we will gaze upon him who is altogether lovely, will enjoy knowing Him and seeing Him and loving Him and praising Him. Martin Luther said, I would not give one moment of heaven for all the joy and riches of the world, even if it lasted for thousands and thousands of years. Those are the four last things. I want to close with two questions. The first is this. Are you prepared for your inescapable appointment with death and with judgment? Today, are you prepared? It's critical. Is your account. Settled with God? Is your soul built on the bloody righteousness of Christ? Are your robes washed in the blood of the Lamb? The second question I want to ask you as I close, if you are not prepared for your inescapable appointment with death and judgment, what are you going to do about your precarious, scary situation and condition? Are you just going to go on like this? Are you just going to go on and say, well, well, the Lord has to do it? Or are you going to repent and believe the gospel just as you are? Yes, the Lord does have to do it. But the fact that the Lord has to do it doesn't mean you sit back with folded arms with a kind of fatalistic attitude. He invites sinners to come to him to do for you what you can't do for yourself. It's illustrated so beautifully, isn't it, in Pilgrim's Progress when Christian felt the burden of his sins. An evangelist who's who's a minister, evangelist meets him when he's crying And he says, why are you crying? And Christian says, well, I perceive by the book in my hand, which is, of course, the Bible, that I'm condemned to die and after that to come to judgment. And I find I'm not willing to do the first and I'm not able to do the second. Well, evangelist replies, why not willing to die since this life is attended with so many evils? Christian responded, because I fear that this burden upon my back will sink me lower than the grave and I will fall into hell. And sir, if I be not fit to go to prison, I am not fit to go to judgment. And from thence to execution. And these thoughts make me cry. Then said evangelist, then said evangelist, if this be thy condition, why standest thou still? That's Bunyan, who believed. Totally in the doctrines of sovereign grace. He, he doesn't have evangelists say, if this be thy condition, well then do nothing and just wait only on God and see if he might save you someday. No, no, no. The Bible never says that. The Bible never talks future tense. Seek the Lord someday in the future. It's always behold now. Now is the accepted day. Now is the day of salvation. And then evangelists says after Christian responds, but I don't know where to go. Flee from the wrath to come, says the evangelist. And Christian says, but where, where must I fly? Do you see the yonder wicked gate? No, not clearly, no. Do you see yonder shining light? I think I do. Keep that light in your eye. That light is the gospel. Keep that light in your eye and go directly to it so shalt thou see the gate, at which when thou knockest, it shall be told thee what thou shalt do. It's, the gate is a symbol of regeneration, being born again. And so Christian begins to run for the gate. He doesn't sit still. He begins to run from the gate. And people, people from the town come out and they, they call him back, but he puts his fingers in his ears and he says, Life, life, eternal life. I need to be saved. I must have eternal life. People mocked him. Some threatened him. Some cried after him to return. Why standest thou still? I must fly to this God. I must throw myself upon him. You can't wait another day. What will you do in the day of divine visitation, says Isaiah 10, verse 3? It will be too late. Too late. You need to seek the Lord now. Jeremiah Burroughs, Puritan, tells a story of a woman in his congregation whose house burned down. She was away at a store. She came home, she saw her house in flames. She ran in, she gathered some memorabilia, some trifles, but she, in her perplexity of mind, she forgot her child that was lying in the cradle. And the house collapsed. And suddenly she screamed. She realized she had these pictures and other little memories around her. But she had lost her child. She had lost her child. What will it be on the day of judgment to say to God, Oh, I... I was anxious to get this. I was anxious to have that good vacation trip. I was, I was anxious to have little memorabilia and nostalgic experiences in my life. But I forgot my soul. As you sink into hell, like the rich man, son, remember, thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things. But Lazarus is now with me. Oh, may it never be said of you, never be said of you, boys and girls, you young people, or anyone, and ye would not repent, and ye would not believe, and ye would not come unto me, Jesus says. I say to you, today is the day of salvation. Make haste for your life's sake. Fly to the blood of Jesus Christ. Be a looker for him. Amen. Lord God, we ask thy benediction upon this sermon. We pray that these four great last things may be bound upon our consciences and that we would all be prepared. That the unsaved would be arrested tonight and drawn to Thee, and that the saved would be reconfirmed as lookers for the Lord Jesus Christ. So bless this sermon, and humble us before Thee, and fill us with gratitude for the Savior and for the great salvation available in Him for the greatest of sinners. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.